pleasure to be announcing the speaker is Lori Meeks from the University of Southern California. Um, Lori has recently published a book entitled Kokeji and the Reemergence of Female Monastic Orders in Pre-Modern Japan. Kokeji uh, was an ancient uh, Nara temple that once stood at the apex of the state combat system. Uh, was established by Queen Consort Komyo in the 8th century. It possesses a history uh, that is very important in the development of larger patterns of female monasticism in Japan. Um, this is a very uh, key study in terms of revival of the nuns' orders, uh, a topic which in fact has relevance today given the issues around the um, reestablishment of nuns' orders in Tibet and other uh, countries as well. Her talk this afternoon is on the Blood Bowl Sutra, um, one of the uh, more um, vibrant uh, elements of Buddhism uh, in East Asia. And so much of what, uh, at least I was trained to do, focused on uh, textual and philosophic issues and abstruse questions about the nature of dharmas and so on, and it's been very exciting to learn about other aspects of Buddhism like the Blood Bowl Syndrome. So I hope that you will join me in welcoming our speaker today. Thank you. So thanks everyone for coming out today. Um, and it's, it's really a pleasure to be here. I want to thank uh, Dr. Kane for inviting me um, and all those who helped organize the trip. Today I'm talking about um, really a new project. I'm, I'm on sabbatical this year, having finished the book on uh, women's monastic orders, and I'm starting a new project, uh, which is very different in scope, although it's, it was informed by questions that came out of the first project on, on nuns in Japan, especially on kind of the reception of ideology about women's uh, salvation. Um, so what I'm presenting today is very much new material, it's in progress, um, I'm still very much in the research stage. I'm still reading and rereading a lot of new text. So um, I hope you'll kind of bear with me today and know that my, my conclusions are very preliminary. Um, but I hope you'll have some feedback for me. Um, I'm interested in, in uh, sort of getting more feedback on how to think through these texts. It's also a kind of a new period for me. In the first book, I focused on uh, roughly the 11th through 14th centuries. This is moving into uh, the 16th and 17th centuries and even into the 18th and 19th. So it's, it's much later material too. Um, so sometime during the late medieval period, most likely the 15th century, several variants of an indigenous Chinese uh, sutra known as the Shui Panjing, or Blood Bowl Sutra. In Japanese, this is known as Ketsubonkyo, were transmitted to Japan. Emphasizing the impurity of women's reproductive blood, this short scripture, and the most common variant is only 420 Chinese characters, so it is pretty short, teaches that women are fated to fall into a special hell known as the blood pond hell, or chi no ike jikoku. And this is in retribution for the sin of polluting the earth with their blood, specifically the blood um, of the menstrual cycle and of, of afterbirth. So I'm going to read you a translation of of the most common variant of this sutra. The Buddha teaches the canonical orthodox sutra on the blood bowl hell. That's Busetsu Daizo Shogyo Kitsubo Kyo. 
At that time, Mulian, in Japanese, Mokuren, said to the world-honored one, the Buddha, I went to Yujo, to Eiyang province, and saw a blood bowl-like hell, Kensubon Ike no Jigoku. Within this lake that is 84,000 Yojanas wide, many women of Jambudvipa had their heads open and their hair scattered by 130 iron beams, iron pillars, iron shackles, and iron ropes. They had their hands bound at a distance with cuffs, and within this hell they endured punishment. Three times per day, the demon king Hellwarden would make the shackled prisoners drink the blood. If they would not indulge him, then the Hellwarden would beat them with an iron rod until they cried out. Grieving, Mulian, or Mokuren, asked the Hellwarden, saying, I do not see men of this world enduring this painful retribution from evil karma. I see only many women suffering this pain. The Hellwarden responded, saying, Teacher, men commit no crime. But these women defile the earth god with the blood of parturition. And also, when they wash their defiled garments in the water of rivers and streams, the pollution spreads inadvertently. And various good men and women using this water for tea and serving it to various holy men cause those holy men to become impure. According to the ruling issued by the great general of heaven, after exi existing in the realm of good and evil for 100 years, after this life is over, they, that is, these women, are to suffer this painful retribution from past karma. Mulian or Mokuren grieved and then asked, Hellwarden, how can we repay this debt to our dear mothers for having given birth and saved them from the blood bowl pond? The warden responded, Teacher, only if attentive and filial sons and daughters honor the three treasures on behalf of their mothers, hold blood bowl feasts for three years, sponsor blood bowl ceremonies, entreat priests to read the sutra in its entirety, have a full day of repentance ceremonies, and send a boat of wisdom to the shores of purgatory, will five petaled lotuses emerge in the blood bowl pond, making prisoners joyful, causing their hearts to give rise to repentance, and enabling them to quickly receive birth in a Buddha land. The various bodhisattvas and mulian respectfully said to the Buddha, may, the may women and good male and female believers of this realm quickly accomplish enlightenment and transform the seeds of their previous lives. Do not lose this teaching that is encountered only once in a million kalpas. For the sake of women, the Buddha preached this Blood Bowl Sutra. Those who have faith in, copy, and uphold the sutra will cause three generations of mothers to receive birth in heaven and acquire happiness. They will naturally be blessed with food and clothing, long life, and prosperity. At that time, the gods, ashras, and other members of the eight groups, including non-humans, all rejoiced, faithfully received, upheld, paid obeisance to the sutra, and retreated. The Buddha teaches the canonical, this is sort of the wrap-up of the sutra, the Buddha teaches the canonical orthodox sutra on the blood bowl, may all of this merit be widely distributed to all women, so that they will be extricated from the blood bowl hell and born in the land of bliss. Today, most Buddhist authorities are quick to point out that the blood bowl sutra occupied a marginal position. That is, that it was a popular sutra never taken seriously by orthodox priests. But while many contemporary Buddhist clerics may find the sutra kind of embarrassing, there's much evidence to suggest that at least some scholarly inclined priest, that is, scholar, uh, priests who actually took the time to write commentaries and such, did in fact take the text seriously. Consider, for example, the Jodoshu priest Shoyo, whose dates are 1638 to 1718. Here, he's in the center here. Um, who compiled a seven-volume commentary on the sutra, a work that was published in 1713. According to the preface written by his disciple, Shoyo had received in 1712 a dream vision from the Bodhisattva Nuririn Kano, 
who told him that it was time to finish and publish his commentary. Shoyo's lengthy commentary mixes orthodox and scholarly sources with local anecdotes and ghost stories. Near the beginning of the work, he includes a long discussion of the Blood Bowl Sutra's status within traditional collections of Buddhist works. The sutra had been in circulation for a long time, he writes, but it appears neither in the first canons imported to Japan nor in the scriptural collections of the Sui and Tang dynasties. Obviously, he writes, it must be an apocryphal sutra, and he uses the word kikyo here, produced by, and this is my translation of what he says, a clever person in Japan. <laughs> but, he continues, sutras without canonical standing are certainly worth using. Zen priests use them regularly, he writes, and many other treasured sutras used widely in Japan, such as the Higang-kyo and the Urabon-kyo, are also non-canonical. To put it frankly, Shoyo explains, as long as it doesn't betray the wise words of the thus come one, there is no prohibition against using such texts. Although we know very little about the initial production and spread of the Blood Bowl Sutra, the text and its many variants, well over a hundred in China and more than a dozen in Japan, eventually penetrated eventually penetrated popular culture to the extent that most major schools of Japanese Buddhism found a way to incorporate the sutra into their teachings aimed at laypeople. Eventually, it became common for priests to incorporate into their funerary services practices aimed at protecting women from the Blood Bowl Hell. Cults to the Blood Bowl Hell Sutra tended to be both diverse and highly localized. Priests and laypeople promoted the sutra not merely for its textual content, but also for its talismanic effects as a material object. Many believe, for example, that the sutra could be used as an amulet worn on the body to ward off pollution, or that if placed in a coffin, it would protect the dead from falling into the blood hole hell. And Duncan Williams, who's in our audience today, um, has written about the, these uses of the text extensively um, in his book, The Other Side of Zen. So I would definitely recommend that if you're, if you're interested in this. Surviving sources do not allow us to answer many of the basic questions about the Blood Bowl Sutra, such as the nature of the text's origins or how exactly it spread from China to other parts of East Asia. In Japan, the text first appears in the historical record in the year 1429, when the priest Choben of Jindaiji Temple in Musashi Province mentions in a journal that the Blood Bowl Sutra, along with a number of other sutras, had been copied for the 33-year memorial service of a samurai's mother. A similar use of the sutra appears in a 1491 entry from the courtier journal Chikanagi Kyoki. Here the author mentioned that he copied seven volumes of the sutra out by hand in honor of his mother's 33rd death anniversary. Other sources attest that, this, um, that during this same period, the colorful descriptions of um, impurity and torment contained in the sutra made their way into narrative tale collections especially the illustrated storybooks of the Muromachi period known as Otogizoshi. Graphic descriptions of the Blood Bowl Hell appear, for example, in the stories Tengu no Dairi, which is dated to the early 1500s, Chōboji Yomigairi no Soshi, which is dated to 1514, and Iz uh, Izaozaki, um, dated to the late 1500s. The narrative of the Blood Bowl Hell was also spread by itinerant storytellers, many of whom styled themselves as monks and nuns, and traveled along major pilgrimage routes, such as those leading to the Kumano shrines. By the late 16th century, a number of pilgrimage sites, such as, such as Shōsenji in Abiko, um, which is in modern-day Chibaken, and Mount, Ta Mount um, Tateyama in Toyama Prefecture, had also begun to associate themselves with the cult of the Blood Bowl Hell. Now, the Blood Bowl Sutra, with its unambiguous contempt for women's bodies, strikes many contemporary readers as a particularly egregious example of misogynistic religious ideology. 
It does not appear, however, to have been an ideology that was forced on lay people in a top-down manner. Close scrutiny of the sutra's history suggests that lay interest largely drove its appeal on the ground. People appear to have enjoyed hearing stories about the tortures of hell and about how women could be saved from them. Moreover, much evidence suggests that at least in Japan, many of the individuals actively involved in the propagation of the sutra and its cult were women. Surviving sources reveal that itinerant nuns on the Kumano pilgrimage routes commonly preached about the Blood Bowl Sutra using painted scrolls that contain vivid illustrations of the tortures that women would endure there. Much like the first image I, I had of this, uh, this PowerPoint display, this is um, from a mandala uh, of Mel's Tatayama um, from the early 19th century. So you see a lot of imagery like this associated with particular um, pilgrimage sites. Um, so these sources also indicate that these sermons frequently attracted, so sermons about the blood bowl hell, that is, frequently attracted uh, largely female audiences. This model of women teaching other women about the blood bowl sutra was replicated in the case of voluntary nyonin ko, or women's confraternities, that emerged in some areas that had particularly vibrant cults to the sutra during the late Tokugawa period. As devotees of the Blood Bowl Sutra cult, women active in Myonin Ko carried out ritual practices in honor of the sutra, such as the chanting of hymns that lamented the filthy nature of the female body and described the tortures of the Blood Bowl hell. So if, as this kind of evidence suggests, practices related to the Blood Bowl hell were overwhelmingly voluntary, um, how can we explain their wide currency among women? Why, given its bleak vision of the female body, did women find the text and its associated practices appealing? How might we understand the fact that women numbered among the Blood Bowl Sutra's primary promoters and devotees in the late medieval and especially early modern periods? Um, I don't really have an answer to this question, no, but it's one that I'm putting out there. Um, the history of cults to the Blood Bowl Hell and their spread in Japan is important, I think, and this is how I'm going to explain how this project came out of, of earlier work. Um, I think that understanding the spread of, of cults to the Blood Bowl Hell um, is important for understanding larger shifts in gender discourse during the late medieval and early modern periods. Um, so one thing that I really learned during um, my research for, for, the, for the book on Kokeji and the reemergence of, of female monastic orders in Japan um, is that up until a certain point in Japanese history, and I would say sometime around the late 14th or early 15th centuries, only the most elite of lay people knew what scholarly Buddhist texts said about women. Um, that is, people who really took an interest in scholarship on their own and had access to uh, Buddhist, scholarly Buddhist learning. Um, few members of the laity studied Buddhism as a holistic tradition that had certain views on certain issues. So people wouldn't have thought of what's the Buddhist view on women, or what's the Buddhist view on women's salvation. Um, most had been exposed only to a smattering of disparate texts and rituals, and few had attempted to read the contents of Buddhist texts on their own. Most lay people appear to have had little awareness or concern over the soteriological obstacles or the salvational obstacles attributed to women in canonical Buddhist texts. Um, Japanese scholar Nomura Ikuyo has also refuted uh, in some of her recent work the long entrenched assumption that lay people in ancient and early medieval Japan viewed the salvation of women as a problem. She examines prayer inscriptions written um, on behalf of the by or on behalf of female lay donors between the years 1185 and 1333, so during the Kamakura period. And she shows that when women or their loved ones commissioned 
Buddhist goods or services, um, or made requests to Buddhist gods and wrote out some kind of inscription saying, well, I'm donating this sutra and this is what I'm hoping, hoping to get from it, this is what my prayer is. Only a fraction, and in her study she, she uses, she has kind of empirical data, she says about 6% of those prayer inscriptions uh, from, this is from the Kamakura Ibun, is her source here, but she says only 6% invoke androcentric doctrines, such as Henjo Nanshi, the idea that women have to seek rebirth into male bodies before they can achieve enlightenment, or the five obstacles, uh, this idea that there are five ranks in the Buddhist cosmos, including that of Buddha, that can't be attained in a female body. So she reveals that even though we might expect, going back to these sources, that women were invoking these terms, in fact, most of them don't. Um, the, the things that women asked for in their prayers were the same things that men asked for. Long life, physical health, and rebirth in paradise. So androcentric Buddhist rhetoric, um, though commonly discussed in contemporary assessments of Japanese Buddhism, is largely absent in the prayer and offertory texts written for and by medieval women. But the situation changed rapidly in the centuries that follow. By the early 16th century, teachings disparaging of the female body, um, especially things like the Blood Bowl Sutra, had gained wide circulation. Um, the sutra's popularity hit its peak during the early 19th century, and it remained a staple of funerary and localized pilgrimage practices throughout the 19th century. And in fact, um, some Japanese studies have noted that there were pat particular communities within uh, the Soto Zen school are particular lineages that were still continuing to invoke the Blood Bowl Sutra in some rituals as late as 1991. The cultic success of the Blood Bowl held is emblematic then of a larger ideological shift that took place during the period of its spread. In the area directly preceding the sutra's transmission to Japan in the late 14th or early, probably early 15th century, androcentric Buddhist views of the female body penetrated popular discourse only partially. But in the cult of the Blood Bowl Sutra, um, we find that disgust for the female body, an idea that had initially been used only in internal monastic discourse um, as a way of discouraging celibate monks from um, indulging any attractions they may have felt for women. That, that kind of internal discourse about disgust for the female body um, is successfully marketed to a larger female audience. Um, and this is interesting, I think, in my, in my work on Hokkeji, I found that a lot of um, the monks that were involved with Hokkeji nuns, in their internal discourse, they talk about needing to be, uh, needing to create distance between themselves and the female order in order to, um, what, be on guard so they can uh, protect their celibacy and so on. Um, but any kind of discourse about the purity of the female body is really kept internal. It's not something that they address to actual female members of their order. But this really changes in later periods. So with the Blood Bowl Sutra, this idea that the female body is disgusting is not just used as a tool to prevent monks from becoming intimate with women, but it's actually preached to women as well and to lay women. Um, so that there's a, a real shift here. Um, so although I won't be able to answer this question today, one of the larger concerns of my new project is to investigate how the rhetoric of the Blood Bowl Hell came to resonate so deeply with the concerns of lay women living in modern Japan. Um, many Japanese scholars of the Blood Bowl Sutra have noted with interest that most Japanese variants of the text, and especially commentaries um, and sermons on the text, uh, tend to emphasize menstruation blood rather than parturition blood or the blood of afterbirth. 
In fact, many do not mention parturition blood at all. And this stands in contrast to the variant translated uh, earlier in my talk when I read you uh, a common version of this sutra. In that text, uh, menstrual blood actually is not mentioned, and the focus is on the blood um, that's released during the birthing process. Um, here it is mothers, particularly, not just all women, but mothers, who are suffering in hell. And the Buddha's disciple, Mulian, or Mokuren, emphasizes the pathos that he feels when he discovers that childbirth causes women to suffer in hell. And he, he says uh, pointedly there, how can we repay this debt to our dear mothers for having given birth? This version of the narrative is above all then a call for filial piety, or it can be understood that way. And indeed, the Buddha makes it clear there that uh, filial sons and daughters should feel compelled to repay this debt to their mothers, um, to help them escape suffering the blood bowl hell by sponsoring Buddhist rites, because as sons and daughters, they are in effect partially they're responsible for the suffering of their mothers. And a number of scholars working on the Blood Bowl Sutra in China, um, people like Jesse Chu and Alan Cole, have suggested that women in China may have found that version of the Blood Bowl Sutra appealing because it accentuated the sacrifices of the mothers and called upon children to carry out rites on behalf of their mothers, who often received um, little at attention in traditional Confucian family politics and memorial rites. So they've made this argument that, well, maybe the reason women found something attractive in the sutra was because it kind of gave them more leverage at home. It enabled them to tell their sons, look at the suffering I'm going to endure for you. You have to um, pay me back in some way. Um, and I think there's something to that argument. Um, but I'm not sure that it applies as much in the Japanese case. Given the degree to which Japanese variants of the Blood Bowl Hell narrative um, downplay parturition blood, it would be difficult to argue that in Japan, too, the sutra's primary appeal to women was that it helped them demand memorial rights or other domestic privileges from their offspring. Rather, in Japan, it seems to be the case that the narrative followed, allowed women to respond to growing concerns about female impurity. Japanese scholarship suggests that the steady spread of ideologies of female impurity, combined with the widespread acceptance of patrilocal family practice and the erosion of women's inheritance rights, set the stage for broad interest in the Blood Bowl Sutra uh, during the late medieval and early modern periods. These processes appear to have unfolded rather gradually um, as a number of often disparate discourses, including not only those based in Buddhist texts and practices, but also those based in Taoist ritual text, <coughs> continental medical literature, um, ritual guidelines enforced at local shrines, um, and other uh, changes in, in legal and political context helped produce the shared understanding that the biological functions of female bodies were polluting and even sinful. The practice of barring women from sacred spaces, myonin kekkai, is evidenced in Japan as early as the 9th century, but the concepts that seem to have informed this practice, namely the notion that menstruation and parturition blood are polluting, did not concern the general public until sometime during the medieval period. These ideas can be traced back to continental texts, especially Taoist ritual texts and Chinese medical texts, but they also appear to have been reinforced in Japan by the rites and regulations issued by shrines for local and indigenous gods. Um, and there's a lot more work to be done in that area. I don't have any general conclusions, but just that um, we know that there were these larger changes taking place that may have supported uh, the spread of the Blood Bowl Sutra. 
So we know that late medieval and early modern texts about the political sutra mention that the sutra, when worn as a talisman, can ward off all impurity, thereby allowing women to visit holy sites and even participate um, in rituals during menstruation. One preliminary hypothesis then is that the cult of the Blood Bowl Sutra allowed women to assert some kind of control over the increasingly pervasive belief uh, in the impurity of women's bodies. The slow but steady spread of ideology about the polluting nature of women's bodies is a complex topic um, and one that I hope to, to uh, address at greater length as this project develops. What I'd like to focus on today are several early modern texts, all written by male priests, that explicate the Blood Bowl Sutra, um, apparently with a general audience in mind. I'm interested in how these texts help us understand how early modern Japanese priests presented the Blood Bowl hell to members of the laity. Um, so these are the, the three texts that um, I've been looking at, and I am very much in the beginning stages of this, so I, I can't, uh, claim to have any kind of authentic, uh, uh, authoritative opinion about any of these texts. Um, but, but these are what I wanted to think about today. So the, the first one, Ketsubonkyo uh, Dangishi, is one I'll probably talk about the least today. It's um, the least embellished version of, um, of early modern commentaries on the Blood Bowl Sutra that I've, that I've been looking at. Um, it opens with a preface with an engi about the origin of the sutra, um, and then it proceeds into a kind of line-by-line -line commentary, where the author, this uh, Tendai, well, actually, we don't know that he's the author. He's a copyist. He, he is said to have copied the text in 1599, and it's thought that this was um, perhaps an in internal discourse that, had, that Tendai priest had been using um, to talk about the sutra. And um, after he explains the origins of the sutra, um, or when he knows about the origins of the sutra, he, he does go through this kind of line-by-line -line explication where he'll, he'll take a segment and then explain each, each Chinese character in, that, um, in those lines. The second one here uh, is Ketsubon Kyowage. This is the longest of the works um, I've been looking at. This was printed in 1713, um, compiled by a Jodoshu priest, priest named Shoyo Ganteki. Um, it's seven volumes, and what's really amazing about this commentary um, is that he's, he's taking this really short sutra, 420 characters, and he manages to get seven volumes of commentary out of it. So and he really goes through line by line, and I took a couple of photographs. I was able to photograph this recently. Um, a, a, and it, it was printed in 1713, um, but I was able to photograph uh, one copy of that. This is actually near the very end, but just to give you a sense of how this works, you know, here this is, this is the last line in the sutra, and basically the entire seven volumes is like this, where you have uh, one line and then a very long explanation of it, and this explanation of those lines goes on for several pages in most cases. Some, in some cases, uh, you know, many, many pages on, on just one line from the sutra. So it's the longest and, in many ways, um, kind of the most comprehensive. It has uh, several, several introductions and prefaces before it gets to the main text, and then it spends an enormous amount of time or space on, on each line of the sutra. Um, in many ways, it's, it's uh, also a very scholarly uh, commentary in that 
Um, it refers to other sutras and commentaries with great regularity, and it often presents multiple versions of things. So you get the sense that Shoyo is really trying to, um, to present everything that he can find out about a given topic when it comes up in the sutra. So he'll present various uh, different interpretations, or um, he'll refer you to numerous different texts in trying to explain parts of the sutra. And then the last one here, Kaiera uh, Fusodan, is probably the most colloquial of these. Um, this, the, the entire text is not about the Kitsubunkyo, but there's a section on the Blood Bowl Sutra. The, the work is a larger collection of sermons that uh, the Soto Zen priest, Unrei Paizen, used during Bodhisattva precept ordination uh, ceremonies. Um, this is the latest of these. You'll see they're about 100 years apart. Um, this is the latest uh, thought to have been compiled around 1804, um, and then was printed by his disciples about 100 years later. Um, it also includes, it, it does include a lot of the narratives that, that what you can find in the earliest version here, the Kitsubunkyo Dangishi. Um, I shouldn't say version, these are all different texts, and they are very different. Um, but he includes many of the same narratives that come up in this earliest te earlier text. Um, but he adds much more embellishment, much more detail. Um, so what I want to do is just to compare these texts um, somewhat briefly. Each of these is, is very different. Um, they're written in very different genres and styles and within different traditions. So we've got a Tendai text, a Dodo Shu, and Soto Zen. Um, there's a, while there is some overlap in content, each text places the Blood Bowl Sutra within an interpretive framework that suits the interest of the school represented by its author or compiler. So we do see in each of these that, especially in the Jodo Shu and Soto, um, the Ketsu Bonkyo is used to talk about um, some of the general teachings of that sect or tradition, school or tradition. Um, but even though there are all these differences, there are several important similarities or trends that can be found in the text, and that's what I really want to focus on. Um, to begin, the most obvious similarity is that all of these texts rely upon very vivid imagery of the tortures associated with the Blood Bowl hell um, and upon local narratives, which come across in many cases almost like ghost stories. Um, stories about women who fell into the Blood Bowl hell and then came back from the dead to beg priests for intercessionary rites. Um, both the Ketsubon Kyo Dangishi and the Kaye Rakusodan, for example, relate the Engi, or origin story, of the Hosoji Temple uh, in Minami-soma, uh, the province of Shimosa, which is in the Kanto region. According to the Ketsubongyo Dangishi version of the Engi, a layperson's daughter was possessed by the spirit of a deceased woman who was suffering the blood bowl hell. When the possessed girl was brought to the abbot of Hosoji, the spirit spoke through her, telling the abbot of the torture she was enduring in the, in the blood bowl hell. She begged him to make 36 copies of the sutra and said that if he were to do so, she would attain birth in the Tushta heaven. The abbot finally finds a copy of the sutra in his library. He makes copies and dedicates them. Um, and then he has a dream in which he sees that the woman who had been suffering has been successfully uh, removed from the blood bowl hell and born into the Tushta heaven. That same narrative, which appears in this kind of a shorter form in the Ketsubon Kyo Dangishi, um, is also related in Taizen's uh, sermons in the Kaye Rokusodan. But he, he presents them in a much more detailed form. Here, the dead woman whose spirit possesses the daughter of a local parishioner is revealed to be the daughter of warrior regent Ojo Tokiyori. Um, 
And despite having been ordained as a nun, we find out, she had fallen into the blood bowl hell. By the time of Taizen's sermon, um, this particular version of the whole Shoji Engi had achieved great success in attracting pilgrims to Shosenji, the former site of Hoshoji. Taizen adopts this popular Hoshoji Engi, which had been greatly embellished since the time of the Ketsubomiyo Damishi, um, and includes a long monologue from Tokiyori's daughter. And I'll share just a few sentences here. And actually, um, Professor Williams has written about this also in uh, the other side of Zen, and, and given the full translation. So she, she appears um, to this priest and describes the, the sufferings of this hell. Um, in this hell, she explains, we are made to drink this defiled blood six times a day. If we refuse to drink it, we are hit upon and stricken by the iron rods of fierce ox and horse-headed demons, forced to meet with the torments of water and hell, or water and fire, sorry. And that's not all. On all sides of the blood bowl hell, there are many vermin with bills hard like iron and sharp nails. They torment the sinners by tearing their skin, eating their flesh, slurping their marrow, pulverizing their bones, ripping their intestines, and so on. It is impossible to describe such anguish using words. Now, similar stories can be found in Shoyo's Ketsubomikyo Wage as well. He relates, for example, an Engi narrative associated with the Soto Temple Myosaiji in the province of Shimosa. When a Zen master named uh, Sekio is traveling through the Kanto region, he explains, this priest was awakened one night by some rumbling. When he opened his eyes, he saw two demons, a red demon and a black demon. And they were crying out, Myosai, Myosai. Well, they were probably doing it in a much more, uh, in a much scarier way. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing a very good interpretation here. Myosai, Myosai, something like that maybe. Um, then the ghost, or Shiro of Myosai, appeared. So this is, is a woman here, covered in blood from the waist down. As she appeared crying, the demon saw her and began torturing her. Sekioku was moved to intervene on the dead woman's behalf, giving her a kaimyo, a, a precept name or a Buddhist name, and carrying out rites that saved her from the suffering she had been enduring in the blood bowl hell. Now, as others have noted, it, it is clear that much of the appeal of narratives about the blood bowl hell um, probably had something to do with their entertainment value. <laughs> the storytelling traditions of Kumano Bikuni, for example, um, they used colorful illustrations as they delivered teachings on the Blood Bowl Hell to pilgrims passing through well-traveled thoroughfares. Um, those storytelling traditions also point to the ways in which the cult was part of a larger culture of lay entertainment. The prevalence of ghost stories and localized manifestations of the Blood Bowl Hell teachings also point, um, as Duncan Williams has uh, pointed out in some of his work, to enduring anxieties about um, the unpacified spirits of the dead. These narratives all integrate popular concern about care for the dead, and especially for the dead who are angry because they are suffering um, in a realm like the blood will help. Um, and this is a theme that's, that's not covered as well in canonical text. So it, it, does, it does seem that this cult probably spoke to um, some need for thinking about um, how to pacify the spirits of the dead. So it spoke to that anxiety. Um, Another trend worth, worth mentioning here is the fact that these texts all make a point of discussing the blood bowl hell as a fate that awaits all women, regardless of their social rank and, and religious status. In other words, early modern texts about the blood bowl hell have a leveling effect. Um, that is, they assert that this horrible fate awaits all women, regardless of what hierarchies might separate them in their social lives. 
The Ketubom Kyodangishi, for example, says that no woman can escape this hell regardless of what religious training or experience she may have. So even bhikkhuni or fully ordained nuns um, face blood bowl hell. They still have to worry about, about this pollution that their bodies have. The Kaye Rakusodan, uh, Taizen's work, also states, quote, those who are born as women, regardless of how high their social rank may be, and even if they are born into the wealthy, to wealthy and noble families, end quote, are equal in the face of the blood bowl hell. And this point, I think, is actually significant um, because most earlier discourses on women in Buddhism, especially those found in the Han and Kamakura periods, are often reluctant to treat women as a single category. Um, doctrinal texts on women in these early, earlier periods around women's salvation um, do frequently treat women as a, as a single category. But lay texts from those earlier periods uh, tend to distinguish high-born women from low-born women. Um, in literature written by elite women of the Han period, for example, uh, they often indicate that they view birth as an elite woman to be uh, superior to birth as a low-born man, for example. Um, or perhaps even superior, it may be better, according to some of these texts, to be born as a high-born woman than to be born as a low-ranking priest, even if you're a priest. Um, so that these, the fact that these later sermons on the Ketsubonkyo discuss women as a single category and make the specific point that the blood bowl hell affects all women equally suggests that the cult was part of a larger shift in Buddhist preaching that sought to emphasize Buddhist teachings as universally, universally applicable. Um, and of course, the irony here is that this argument about universality and equality, everyone is the same in front of the Buddha, um, is also used to argue for a universal lack of equality between men and women. So suddenly, uh, all women are the same in, in the face of the Buddha, and all men are the same in the face of the Buddha. Um, so those are sort of the first two similarities I wanted to point out. Um, finally, a third trend I'd like to draw attention to is the fact that these texts all suggest that through the intercession of male priests and their specialized teachings, women can avoid the torments of the blood bowl hell. Um, and really that it's through uh, reliance upon an order and especially upon male priests that women can gain salvation. That's something that's made really clear in, in all of these works. Um, and it's probably on this point that we see the most continuity with medieval Japanese understandings of women's salvation. For while the blood bowl hell does not appear in late Han and early and Kamakura period discourses on women's salvation, the notion that women ultimately need to depend upon the mediation of male priests in order to win salvation is a constant theme in literature promoted by a male priest. As these texts suggest, are, as these texts suggest that women must look to male priests in order to avoid the blood bowl hell and attain salvation, they also use the narratives of the blood bowl hell to affirm teachings associated with their own school or lineage. In this aspect of the discourse, in which priests explain how the blood bowl hell fits within the larger teachings of their school, we may be able to get a better sense of how the teaching was made to appeal to lay people. And in thinking about this last point, um, I'm going to focus on Shoyo's Ketsubon Kyowage um, and Taizen's Kaede Rakusodan. And I'll start with Shoyo's work um, because it's, it's a bit earlier. So Shoyo's commentary is written, uh, like I mentioned before, in an almost encyclopedic style. Um, he attempts to include every reported explanation of specific terms and concepts when explaining the Blood Bowl Sutra. Um, in explaining why it is that women fall into the blood bowl hell then, he cites numerous texts that describe the blood 
of menses and childbirth is polluting and even evil, using the character Aku. Um, this type of bleeding, though involuntary, is described in numerous texts on the blood bowl hell as an act that creates the karma causing women to fall into the blood bowl hell. What's interesting about Shoyul's commentary, though, is that this explanation is not the only one he offers. In fact, the explanation that he seems to prefer is one that explains the blood bowl hell as evidence of just how strange and unfortunate this world is during the latter age of the Dharma. Mapo Matsudai or Masse. Um, and he really emphasizes this throughout the commentary. Um, so after that uh, story of Myosai, which I mentioned earlier, for example, Shoyo reflects in his in this sort of uh, final part of that narrative um, that even though Myosai was innocent, he uses the word Saibu here, she fell into the blood bowl hell in retribution for the act of defiling the earth gods with blood that she shed involuntarily. His conclusion? Um, he says that women in this latter age of the Dharma must be extra vigilant, for the obstacles that women face today are extremely grave. Women and all beings, he writes, must take refuge in the Buddha Dharma and intone the name of, the, of Amida Buddha so as to avoid falling into hell during this latter age of the Dharma. And this is very interesting because in some of the other texts, um, there's this kind of uh, great attempt to explain how women can create bad karma, karma that leads them to uh, the blood bowl hell, even without, through a, through a sin or a transgression that's involuntary. Because that doesn't go along with conventional Buddhist logic. Usually, to create bad karma, you have to uh, commit a voluntary act. Um, and so some of the texts do kind of go to these great lengths to explain, well, it's because of their bad karma from previous lives that women shed blood, and therefore this it still makes sense in this karmic explanation. But Shoyo doesn't do that. He kind of admits, well, Myosai was blameless here. Um, she, it's not her fault that she bled like this. Um, and so he goes back to this idea, well, it's because it's the latter age of the Dharma. So this fits in with Purulan teachings more broadly. Um, in local narratives, um, they combine, oh, I'm sorry. So in another narrative, in another narrative from Shoyo's work, in a local narrative that combines belief in the supernatural with concerns about the impurity of women's blood, Shoyo tells of a village woman who was punished with an illness after washing her menstrual blood-stained clothing in a nearby pond. It was only after she had a priest perform one million recitations of the Nenbutsu, Kyakumangmen Nenbutsu for her, and a special kuyo ceremony at the pond where she had washed her clothing, that her illness subsided and the water in the pond, which had remained red for a long time even after um, she had finished her washing. That water finally became pure again after the special rite was performed. Um, and at the end of her life, Shoyo tells us, this woman attained birth in paradise, Kokuraku Ojo, thanks to the rites that had been performed for her. In this final age of the Dharma, he summarizes, strange and unbelievable, Fushigi, things like this happen. And so we cannot at all doubt that a blood bowl hell does exist in this world, he says. Women of this age must be extra cautious um, they should reside in their faith, and in the 35th vow of Amida, the vow where he says that um, he will save women from subsequent births uh, in female bodies. Um, so in general, Shoyo's commentary reifies traditional uh, Buddhist hierarchies that privilege men as spiritually superior to women. But at the same time, he uses stories of the blood bowl hell to reach out to women, um, to communicate the idea that Jojo teachings are exceptional simply because they include methods for saving women even in the 
this final age of the Dharma. Um, so we sort of suggest that in this final age, there are things like the blood bowl hell, even though they might not make sense in traditional um, Buddhist understandings of karma and so on. And so these teachings are, are necessary, um, and our school offers them and, and has, has thought about um, the special needs of women. In the sixth volume of the Ketsubun Kilowagi, for example, Shoyo writes that because of their karmic obstacles, women cannot, through their own power, reach the pure lands of various Buddhas. Um, so women can't reach the pure lands of other Buddhas, he writes. Um, but thanks to the primal and 35th vows of Amida, they can attain birth in Amida's pure lands. So again, it's this, this idea that this school has an exceptional teaching. Shoyo thus reminds the reader that although women may face obstacles, greater obstacles than men, that is, on the Buddhist path, Amida Buddha is looking out for them and has included them in a larger plan to save sentient beings. Um, and I also wanted to add here that he does also emphasize men's obstacles in his work, too. So he's not just saying that women have extra obstacles in this last stage of the Dharma, but that all, all beings do, men as well. Um, he routinely um, I'm sorry, routinely, notes that in this final age, neither men nor women can attain jōbutsu, or, or Buddhahood, in this lifetime. Moreover, he affirms the importance of filial piety, something that mothers in his audience may have found attractive. He discusses writings on pregnancy and childbirth, and he cites scriptures in which it is said that um, sons with evil inclinations actually cause their mothers pain and boom. He writes that people who lack filial piety bear the sins of the five famous crimes. Um, and he says that the unfilial should repent, take refuge in the primal vow, and intone the name of Amida Buddha. So even though we don't see a lot of emphasis on filial piety in some of these commentaries, it does come up in Shoyo's work. Um, and so now I want to turn to Tizen's uh, sermons, which offer a largely divergent interpretation of the Blood Bowl Sutra, but one that might also appeal to lay people. First, unlike Shoyo, Taizen does not suggest that women are blameless in the shedding of their menstrual blood. Following the tradition of earlier texts, such as the Ketsubun Kyodangishi, uh, Taizen makes the argument that menstruation is a sinful act that brings, um, that leads to birth in the blood bowl hell because it creates bad karma. And he argues that women are born as women, that is, as beings who menstruate, due to sins from past lives. But he also suggests that women face greater social obstacles than men, and that much of the evil karma they accumulate in this life is actually the result of constraints placed on them by others. In other words, he argues that the sins associated with women are not entirely inherent um, to their physical bodies, but are also the result of the, of the difficult conditions under which women are forced to live. Moreover, he argues that these conditions can be overcome, and that women should not be discouraged, but should persist in their efforts to awaken to the Buddha nature, that they, like all sentient beings, so as a Soto Zen priest, Taizen frames his discussion of the Blood Bowl Sutra within a larger commentary on the non-discriminatory doctrine of the Buddha nature. Um, only after very lengthy discourse on the universal quality of the Buddha nature does he explain why it is that women face difficulties on the Buddhist path. Um, he says that while the seeds of Buddhahood may not discriminate, the conditions faced by individual sentient beings vary widely. When the moon shines on the water, he writes, its reflection is clear, but in the mud, the reflection of the moon cannot be seen. And then, of course, he uh, applies this metaphor to women. He says, um, even the all of always abiding uh, Buddha nature is hidden when one is muddied by the obstacles of karma and desire. 
The problem he writes is especially evident in the case of women because it is women's lot to face many obstacles or sawadi. It is difficult, he says, for them to enter this difficult to encounter in the Dharma. After brief references to scriptural explanations of women's spiritual obstacles, things like the five obstacles um, and the thrice following Sanju, this idea that women have to follow uh, their fathers when they're young, their husbands when they're middle-aged, and their sons when they're old, which can be traced back even to the uh, Indian text, the laws of Manu. Um, so he, he goes through those kind of conventional explanations of women's salvation, um, but then he shifts to more concrete examples. He says, even if a woman wants to pursue spiritually, a spiritually meritorious activity, such as taking a pilgrimage to a celebrated mountain or holy site, she can't go if her husband won't grant permission. And even if she wants to listen to sermons or dharma talks, he says, her household duties, things like taking care of her husband and children, make it difficult for her to go as she would like. Because women lack independence, Tyson says, they end up spending their days and nights feeling jealous, engaging in treacherous speech, spreading rumors, and so on, creating nothing but the karma that causes them to uh, remain in samsara and growing increasingly distinct from the Buddha Dharma. Moreover, he says they get trapped in the net of obligation and love towards their husbands and children, a situation that causes them to get caught up in concerns about reputation and profit and that prevents them from living serenely. Um, and then he says, from, from day to night and throughout the seasons, women toil to carry out unlimited tasks with their limited bodies and social positions. Under these conditions, he says, it's impossible for them to avoid the accumulation of bad karma that leads to menstruation and eventually to the blood bowl hell. So in this view, um, the sins associated with women result not merely from the female body or from personality traits viewed as innate to women, but also from the living conditions that society imposes upon women. And maybe this is an overly uh, benevolent reading of Tyson, I'm not sure, but um, social restrictions, Tyson explains, often prevent women from having the opportunity to gain religious merit through the practices such as pilgrimage and attending sermons. And these limitations, in turn, lead to feelings of oppression that give rise to morally harmful acts and thoughts, things like jealousy, pride, and gossip. So these are the kinds of negative character traits that are often associated with women in, in traditional Buddhist texts and Confucian texts and so on. Uh, but instead of suggesting that those traits are, are sort of genetically received, he suggests that they're actually social conditions that, that uh, cause those in kind of oppressive situations to give rise to these sorts of traits or feelings. Um, so he asserts, in effect, that he understands just how taxing and how frustrating it is to be a woman in a society that demands so much of women. Women should be viewed not with contempt then, but with compassion for they face even greater obstacles than men on the path to enlightenment. Um, so after lamenting how difficult it is to create karmic merit as a woman, Tyson goes on to tell women that they do in fact have great potential on the Buddhist path. If they can find just enough spare time to listen to even one sermon, they will create the causes and conditions leading to a reasonably large amount of merit. <coughs> Such merit, he says, has the potential to produce seeds of Buddhahood equivalent to those that resulted in the attainments of the Buddha's Shakyamuni and Amitabha. He then draws on scriptures suggesting that spiritual attainment may in fact be more accessible to those in inferior social conditions. Of course, this is a move that a lot of texts make, but he says, according to the Vimalakirti Sutra, the lotus flower does not emerge on high dry lands. It is in the sludge of damp and marshy grounds that this flower is born. 
He goes on to say that women must not be discouraged in their practice of Buddhism um, and that to feel defeated in their practice is even a greater sin. Um, quoting scripture again, he tells women that it is blasphemy against the Buddhas to feel resignation in the face of spiritual obstacles. Women and all beings, he says, should not lose confidence but should be driven to overcome difficult conditions and obstacles. Um, so with that reasoning, Tizen says that the teaching on the Blood Bowl Sutra is a wondrous gift to women. Um, this sutra, he says, offers women a tool, and here he means a, very, a tool in a very physical sense, against the obstacles they face as beings burdened with the evil karma resulting in female birth. Using the sutra as a talisman, he writes, women can proceed with confidence to sacred sites not, not ordinarily open to them. So there's this idea that the sutra kind of provides them with something that they need um, in order to carry out practices that might otherwise be closed off to them. So Tyson's attention to the ultimate potential of women on the Buddhist path, as well as, as his awareness that women may have felt oppressed or limited by social expectations, expectations placed on them, suggests, I think, that some women may, some lay women may have found in uh, these teachings of the Blood Bowl Sutra a means of asserting control over prevailing understandings of women's pollution. We see in Tizen's sermons how teachings focused on the talismanic uses of the sutra, especially those that acknowledge the day-to-day -day struggles of women, may have made the um, cult of the Blood Bowl Sutra attractive to, to women. If widespread belief in the impurity of women's bodies was simply a fact of late medieval and early modern religious life, then Tizen's teaching, though failing to challenge this discourse, um, may have given women the opportunity to seize some control over it, or at least to feel that they were able to have some agency um, in the face of it. It may be possible to read Shoyo's commentary, too, in a similar light. If belief in female impurity had simply become a part of everyday life in the early 18th century, or by the early 18th century, then Shoyo's commentary offered women some kind of hope and reassurance. First, it suggested that women were blameless in their predicament. Um, in this view, the conditions that women face may be understood as the result of the final age of the Dharma, rather than as the result of, of any particular sins that women had committed, or are thought to have commit, committed. Um, secondly, Shoyo suggests that individual women could assert, through trust in Amida Buddha, and through regular Nimbutsu practice, um, some control over the discourses of impurity that had come to shape their lives, women's lives in early modern Japan. That is, he gives story after story of women who um, are able to uh, gain salvation from this hell, or to avoid birth in the hell, to, go, to have a, a Nimbutsu Ojo uh, as soon as they die because they have practiced uh, true life Buddhism um, in a corrupt way. So in summary, there are several trends visible in these three commentaries on the Blood Bowl Sutra. First, the sutra is promoted as a popular tradition with vivid imagery and sensational narratives, these ghost stories, if you will. It is treated as a, secondly, it's treated as a teaching that regards all women as part of a single category of polluted beings. And third, it's used to explain why women must depend on the spiritual mediation of the male priests. Also, I also um, noted that, in different, that different traditions appropriated the Blood Bowl Sutra as a teaching that served to bolster um, the broader claims of, of their own school of lineage. That is, Shoyo used the sutra to emphasize the need to recite Amida's name and to rely upon his vow. He also uses it to talk not only about the primal or 18th vow, but also about the 35th. Taizen, on the other hand, uses it to expound teachings on the Buddha nature. And in comparing these commentaries of Shoyo and Taizen, I also suggested that these works offered women 
the, an opportunity to assert some kind of control over dominant discourses of female impurity, primarily because both texts tell women that they can, in fact, avoid the blood bowl hell by carrying out particular religious practices. Um, so it's not my intention uh, to overlook the, the role that these texts must have played in the reification and even further popularization of the blood bowl hell, um, a teaching that clearly disparaged women in their bodies. But what I'm hoping to do here uh, is to think through possible, the possible appeal of these discourses um, so that we can begin to understand why lay women may have found them attractive. Um, in studying the blood bowl hell, I want as much as possible to move beyond uh, the contemporary Western impulse to see pre-modern women as kind of the dupes of uh, patriarchal ideologies. Um, so it's my hope as I move forward with this project to be able to find some kind of methodological middle ground, um, one that recognizes the power structures embedded in discourses of the blood bowl hell, while also acknowledging the agency of the cult's female supporters. There were women who believed in them, and we don't want to just think that it or want to move beyond an explanation that just understands their support of the cult as some kind of false consciousness to try to see what was in this cult for them, um, why it may have appealed to them. Um, so, so that's uh, where I'd like to end. Um, I don't have any broader conclusions except for just these uh, um, trends that I noticed in these texts, and I look forward to any feedback you may have, suggestions, questions. I've also got some images I can show.